from my experience, a lot of owners are very receptive to non-drug therapies like massage or swimming or physiotherapy or some of the adjunctive therapies like acupuncture. Especially if they've experienced them themselves, they're, they're very much quite pro them and they're the ones suggesting it, which is nice really. Welcome to the Vet Times Podcast, a concise weekly topical clinical podcast from the people behind Veterinary Times. Pets, like their owners, are now living to an older age, so more will be impacted by chronic pain issues. Joining me on this Vet Times Podcast is Karen Walsh, specialist in veterinary anaesthesia, who will discuss pain management issues in companion animals. Hi Karen, how are things? Good, thank you. Good. How are you? Yes, I'm good too, thanks. Are we seeing more cases, would you say, of animals presented with chronic pain? And if we are, what would that be down to? Both owners and vets are probably recognising it more, I'm sure. And also, I think pets live longer, just like we live longer, because medicine and, and surgery are more advanced, so they can live longer. And what people are interested in is is good quality of life, I think. So they're more aware of it, which makes, if you're aware of a problem, then you're much more likely to diagnose it or be worried about it. And so the owners would bring them to to the vet and the vets are much more likely to to be aware and, and think that that's something that they need to treat. So I think it's just mirroring what's happening in human medicine, really. We know much more about chronic pain in ourselves. Um, So once we do know that, then we transfer that, I suppose, to our pets as pet owners. And then um, we certainly see lots of information trickling down from the medical world, which makes it easier for vets to recognise it as well. And I suppose one of the biggest challenges is that they can't vocalise what the pain is, as you can with sort of human medicine. Is that one of the bigger challenges? Yeah. And I think some of the things with acute and chronic pain assessment it is this non-vocalisation, non-verbal patient that we're dealing with, which is probably why it's quite good to look at paediatric and neonatal research because they have to deal with sometimes non-verbal patients and also with those people with disabilities, maybe learning disabilities and um, other disabilities, they may not be able to verbalise what they're feeling because it is a subjective emotional concept, even though it's real. Because it changes in between individuals, there is a variation about what each person or each animal feels is painful and how painful that is. Um, it varies greatly. So I think we need our skills as, for observation even more yes. than um, maybe our colleagues that are dealing with adult humans. Um, so I think that's why there's lots of different ways of assessing pain in animals because it's just not an easy thing to do. Um, for our species. How do you decide which treatment to use and, and how you're going to manage chronic pain? Number one is what what is painful, what the pain is that the pet or the animal is, is experiencing. So what the mechanism is. I always say I'm a very logical person. Nice. <laughs> so, so I like to think about what is the cause. Um, is it, say, is it an inflammation? So if there's an inflammatory component of that pain, should we be thinking about using anti-inflammatories? Um, is it a neurological or a neuropathic nerve-initiated pain? Do we need to be thinking about that? So, number one, sort of, what, where is the pain originating and what type of pain it is? 
The other thing as vets, we do have constraints. I don't mm-hmm. know if that's a good word to what we can use because we have to think about what's licensed yes, um, in the species that we're dealing with and also in the particular disease state that they are at. And I think it's in, we do have to think about that because I think that's a protection for the owner and the pet as well um, and also means that we need to look at is there evidence for what we're doing? So I think um, it's very difficult in veterinary medicine because we don't have huge numbers of anything um, often to to make those those calls on. But I think licensing is important. The other thing I think, especially for cats, I always think in particular is palatability. So you can know what is the right thing to give them, but if they won't take it, <laughs> you haven't got much hope yes. of de- dealing with that. So, um, you know, something like gabapentin always springs to my mind. It's supposed to be really bitter. I've never had gabapentin, but this is what people tell me. And cats, some, you know, they might take it once or twice and it works really well, but then they get wise to it and being a cat owner myself, I know if a cat doesn't want to do something, it's very difficult to persuade them to do it. It's kind of game over, isn't it, if they don't want to do it, yes. Yeah, yes, exactly, all... yeah. And I think the other thing, I think what we need to do is also fit in with the lifestyle of the owner and the pet because if you tell someone to give something four times a day or do something four times a day and they aren't able to do that, you know, if we, it's very difficult if you're working, I think, to 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 do something like that, then actually their mindset probably is, makes it more difficult then for them to then complete the treatment. So you've got to think about how, how easy is it for them to be compliant. Um, I mean, I work, I've got animals, and now I can bring my animals, my dogs to work. But before that, I would have had to rely on getting somebody in. If I needed to give something three times a day, I'd probably have to get someone in at lunchtime. So I think things like practical things sometimes are as important as the pharmacology as well. Sure. I mean, on on that subject, there's quite a lot of other management opportunities, I suppose, and tools and services that are out there. There's diet and physical therapies and and that kind of thing. It's obviously made much more easy, I suppose, for, for owners. Um, in terms of the what to use or yeah I think so in terms of the different things that you can suggest beyond the drugs I suppose there's diet I, options and yeah I mean I, and I think certainly I mean for myself if I can think of a non-drug option hmm. I would prefer that and I think actually clients are really responsive generally really responsive to it. I wonder if diet is maybe the one <laughs> the one thing that maybe clients sometimes find a bit difficult um, to believe a pet is overweight, um, and I think I think having weight clinics and that kind of thing is actually really important because to try and maximise a pet's sort of um, physical well-being, having not being overweight, having a good diet are important. But we give love to our pets by giving them food. So sometimes yes, that, that's, yes. a, that's a different, little bit difficult to do because it's actually trying to change what the owner is doing. Um, but I think from my experience, a lot of owners are very receptive to non-drug therapies like massage or swimming or um, physiotherapy or some of the adjunctive therapies like acupuncture, um, especially if they've experienced them themselves. They're, they're very much 
quite pro them and they're the ones suggesting it, which is nice really. Um, and I think certainly in, from what I can understand in human medicine is it's, and maybe they're going to have, they're having to think about this because of the problems they're having with opioids in humans that thinking it as in a holistic manner, not yes. just thinking about drug therapy, but everything else that might affect the pain that someone's experiencing. And I think our pet, well, the pets really will have similar, um, you know, we can do similar things. We just can't get that feedback sure, <laughs> from them. They can't tell us that they feel better. Yes. <laughs> but, but, but what we're trying to see is these observations that they might be feeling better. Is this an area where there are a lot of visual aids that you can draw on in, in the consult room? Um, I think, I mean, there's a veterinary arthritis app. I, can, I can't remember it off the top of my head, <laughs> which okay. is quite a nice um, thing to use. And I think probably there's room for expansion of those things. But I think certainly we've got things that we can show them in the clinic about diet and um, sort of physical therapies. But potentially... I think this is probably somewhere that nurses and sort of other lay staff can also be really good because I actually think nurses are much better at talking about those sorts of things than vets are. <laughs> we'll sort of relate it to the owner and Yeah, I think way. so. I think they have a better... I don't know whether they're stricter with the, with the owners or um, maybe they, you know, sort of they can... An owner sometimes feel better about or feel less inhibited asking them questions. Sure. that they may perceive as not being sort of very relevant or, or they might feel that they're asking a silly question. But I think sometimes they're less likely to ask the vet, but the more they will feel better about asking a nurse or other member of staff. And it's playing to that strength and, and utilising it, isn't it? Yeah, you know, it no, exactly. A good, I think, a good resource in, yeah. for, for all concerned. Would you say that this is an area where we have seen quite a lot of research and innovative products? I mean, I think a lot of, still a lot of the stuff that we're using um, that's beyond the non-steroidals. Um, I mean, we've obviously got a tramadol license now, but still a lot of things are, are from the human world. And that, but that it is a big area of research in, hum, in, in human medicine because it's such a large area that there are problems with people losing. Um, days to work so um, a lot of the stuff that we will be using the sort of um, more advanced or sort of less common drugs are coming directly from human medicine they're not licensed but I think certainly the there's more and more certainly I've been qualified how long I don't know 25 years and even the fact that people are writing about it is is an improvement um, and I think people are doing more research into how we can assess them and therefore then we can make more inroads into what treatments are the best for what particular condition so I think it's going to be something that's just going to keep increasing our knowledge and our ability to treat it as well excellent and be good for all concerned so uh, yes, yeah, yeah let's hope so yeah. I mean I can only assume hopefully that um, as we us um, life um, longevity is getting greater um, and you, you just get more problems as you get older yes. <laughs> human and animal so <laughs> you're you're more likely to have some sort of chronically painful condition so it needs to be sort of looked at and um, advances made so um, but the fact that people are even thinking about it and talking about it is it's probably the biggest change for me, the last 20 to 25 years. Excellent. And uh, so build on those platforms and see where we go from here, yeah. I guess. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah.
Excellent. Thanks so much for joining us, Karen. That's brilliant. And I uh, should mention that you've written an article for us for that Times. It's going to be appearing in print in issue eight, so the listeners can check that out as well. Uh, but thank you very much for your time this morning You're joining welcome. us on the podcast. That's it for Vet Times podcast this time. Thanks to our guest. If you like what you've heard, tell your friends and leave us a review on iTunes. But for now, thanks for listening. See you next time.